welcome to Doing the Work, the frontline stories of social change, where we bring you stories of real people working to address real issues. I am your host, Shimon Cohen. I'm excited to let everyone know that we are now offering our Racial Justice and Liberatory Practice Continuing Education Series at Columbia University, Michigan State University, and the University of Houston. These classes are co-facilitated by me and Charla Yearwood, who has been a guest host and guest on Doing the Work. Each course is three weeks long with online content and weekly one-hour Zoom meetings. Our courses cover social identity, positionality, and defining racism, the history of racism in the United States and that it's always existed, white supremacy, white privilege, racism, and oppression in social work, social movements, black liberation, black power in social work, using critical race theory and intersectionality in practice, racial justice and anti-oppressive practice, liberatory practice, and be prepared for backlash. Where do we go from here? Check the links in the show notes to learn more and register. We'd love to have you. In this episode, I talk with Dr. Maxine Davis, who is an assistant professor and the Chancellor Scholar of Inclusive Excellence in Intimate Partner Violence Prevention and Intervention at Rutgers School of Social Work. Dr. Davis shares her experiences of the structural and interpersonal anti-black racism, sexism, and oppression she experienced as tenure-track faculty at her previous institution. She is incredibly vulnerable and opens up about when she attempted suicide due to the pain she was experiencing. We talk about specific examples of the varying attacks and racial assaults colleagues and administrators perpetrated on her and others, as well as the lack of any mechanisms for accountability or who you can go to when you've tried all forms of redress. This is an issue within individual institutions but also the larger social work profession and higher education as a whole. Dr. Davis shares details that she has not yet publicly shared. She also talks about her plan to create a green book as well as a red book so that faculty and scholars in the job market, particularly black faculty and scholars, have much more information about these institutions prior to accepting a job offer. I hope this conversation inspires you to action. Before we get into the interview, I want to let you all know about our episode sponsor, the University of Houston Graduate College of Social Work. First off, I want to thank them for sponsoring the podcast. UH has a phenomenal social work program that offers face-to-face master's and doctorate degrees, as well as an online and hybrid MSW. They offer one of the country's only political social work programs and an abolitionist-focused learning opportunity. Located in the heart of Houston, the program is guided by their bold vision to achieve social, racial, economic, and political justice, local to global. In the classroom and through research, they are committed to challenging systems and reimagining ways to achieve justice and liberation. Go to www.uh.edu forward slash social work to learn more. And now, the interview. Hey, Dr. Davis, thank you. So much. I feel like this interview has been such a long time coming. I'm just so excited to be. I know the listeners don't see us, but you know, we can see each other as we're recording. Mm -hmm. And 
I mean, I think we've, I don't even know if it was like two years ago, three years ago when we connected, but like, (laughs) I'm really, really excited to have you here on Doing the Work. Thank you so much. It's an incredible honor and um, I'm I'm grateful to be here and to be invited to come have this chat and and have a discussion that's been, like you said, a long time coming. Um, and I'm just I'm I'm so grateful that we met through Twitter. And this is the the epitome of like, look at the power of Twitter, bringing people in community together and giving people access to the resources of just having having people they can call on outside of the isolation that can happen in your own institution or something like that. Yeah, that's a really good point because Twitter can often be a total shit show, but Mm -hmm. this like connecting with you and other folks who, you know, like Mm -hmm. you just said, like for me, it was really critical and like breaking through isolation I was experiencing while I was going through stuff um at a pre- the previous institution a previous institution I worked at for many years and mm-hmm. I think one time I like posted about it you know about being gaslit and things like that um for speaking up around issues of racism and like you were like hey I think we're going through some similar <laughs> things I have a whole thing I'm dealing with right now and that is I think that was like one of our first interactions that led us to like you know, really um, kind of like supporting each other through this over the years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, that was like, you know, and now I know you've gone public um, about your experience um, at your previous Mm -hmm. institution. There was a recent uh, article in the Chronicle Mm -hmm. of Higher Ed um, that highlighted you along with other uh, faculty of color, you know, who have experienced who have had similar experiences Mm -hmm. um and i just want to first stay say i want to first say that i know that there is so much you could speak about like you have expertise about so many things that Mm -hmm. we could be talking about and like i'm totally up for that conversation too (laughs) you know when you want to have that but i know that um this is something you've really wanted to have a really uh get to express like your experiences and i'm grateful that you you know are choosing doing the work as one of the uh places where you feel comfortable to do that yeah it's and and that's that's real this is not um these are not the type of conversations that um i would feel comfortable going into a mass media setting type thing because they don't provide enough nuance and space. And I, of course, don't want what I say to turn into a a sound bit that's been circulated and distracts from the complexity um, of the problems in academia, especially for people of color and um, historically oppressed and marginalized populations. It is it is so I'm so intentional with where I speak and what I accept and what I don't. And um, I don't, I don't just talk to anybody, you know, but especially about things that are um, this intimate and this important, um, such as experiencing racism in unexpected spaces like social work and um, even, you know, higher ed in general, 
um, some of the things that people encounter is blows my mind because like, wait a minute, this is supposedly amongst the most educated of our society in these really overt and robustly um, horrific things are happening in spaces that theoretically shouldn't even be. Um, but yeah, this is this this is the right space, the right time, the right conversation. And yes, I've held back a lot. Um, I often tell people like, for real, ooh, we y'all be, be grateful, be so glad that I'm saved because so much of what I choose not to say really could completely end people's careers. And that's not my goal um, in the sense that wherever there's opportunity and space, I do at the core of myself believe that people can change. And so there's a certain set of criteria that um, I allow myself to think about in terms of if I'm going to name someone in the wrongdoing that they've perpetuated or not. And a large part of that is providing multiple opportunities for learning and correcting wrongdoing and doing things better or differently. And like I said, I, you know, for example, the person who uh, has a PhD in, um, in social work and uh, touched my hair multiple times, despite me saying halt, <laughs> I'm, I'm never going to name her because she learned and changed her behavior in ways that I can't express because it without her, but there was a transformation that was allowed to happen. And so it's pointless to, it's pointless to me to um, deny people who are human, deny humans the opportunity for um, showing up better and creating a more healthy environment. And if we every, every time, if every single time we shame people and out them, then I think that breaks down opportunity for growth. Um, so I'm not a big, bad monster like some people claim or want to portray me to be. Like I said, there's a lot that I haven't shared and that I won't because it's not necessary and it doesn't, it, it distracts from the egregious things that need to be dealt with. So just because I've shared a lot, I want people to know it's still only a very small percentage of what I experienced and what I choose to share is strategic for good reason. I hear that a hundred percent. So let's, let's get into that. Let's get into, um, you know, your experiences at your previous institution. Um, I, you know, I've seen you explain it as anti-black racism, as mm -hmm. sexism, as misogynoir. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, and but I, of course, those are things that I've seen you describe it as. And this is the opportunity to really hear it. People can hear it like directly from you. Like they're going to be listening or reading, you know, on the transcript, your words about this. Yeah. And the, the heterocentrism of it all, too, um, that happened just as quickly as the anti-black racism occurred um and and being in the thick of witnessing live um anti-asian racism occurred nearly 
as as quickly as anti-black racism did. The anti-black racism I talk about more so than anything else because it was it showed up as the most egregious and perpetual um, across different spaces and places and in different ways. The other types of abuses were minimized or or restricted rather to particular context and were not as overt. They may have been a little bit covert. And I also didn't encounter them as much as the anti-Black racism. That I encountered over and over and over and over and over again um, to the point where it became the most unbearable. So that's why I talk about that the most. But it doesn't mean that the other stuff wasn't impactful. It absolutely was. It absolutely was. And the combination of all of those things, I want to be very clear on that. It's the combination of all of those is um, what led to me sharing the first line of my publication in Nature Um, within the first three months on a 10-year track at my former institution, um, I attempted suicide. And having survived that serious attempt is miraculous. And I thank God every day for the opportunity to talk about these experiences in ways that allow people not to feel like they're alone um, or that they're by themselves or somehow it's just, this is just happening to me. Nobody else has experienced this. It must be me. Um, and, and I'm open in talking about my experiences um, with uh, attempted suicide and suicidal ideation in an important way, because I think this is, this happened despite socioeconomic status, despite like community violence was not a factor. Um, Intimate partner abuse or relationship distress was not a factor. Money was not a factor. Um, Access to healthcare, access to, mental health care, all of this was not a factor. And I still wound up in a place that almost cost me my life. And I think that that conversation really needs to be understood and digested um, when thinking about risk factors for suicide and what suicide prevention looks like. Suicide prevention in academia looks like stop being Mm -hmm. (laughs) anti-Black. Stop touching people's hair. Stop criticizing me for the way that I talk in using African-American vernacular English and not code switching every moment. All of those things are suicide prevention. And I think people don't really see their role in being able to um, improve health conditions by that. The last thing I want to say on that um, experience I mean, we can feel free to ask me questions and talk about it more, but I don't want it to take over our conversation. The last thing I wanted to say about that, though, is that arriving at that place, people might not understand what that feels like. And I'd like to share my experience of what it feels like. It feels like I just want the pain to stop. And it's not anybody, anything anybody could have done or anyone I could have called or anybody, you know, the overwhelming feeling is I just want the pain to stop. So I offer that um, as a way for people to 
know that they're not alone and um, there are ways for the pain to stop without ending your life. So thank you for space to let me share that. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I'm, and I've told you this before, I'm so glad you're here. Hey man. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I appreciate how vulnerable you are about this because it will help others, you Mm -hmm. know? And, um, cause there's going to be people who have felt that way or feel that way. And hopefully that can help them. And then there's going to be people that I hope are in positions where they can change what they're doing so that they don't, um, keep creating these conditions that, you know, leads to a successful black woman professor, you know, feeling that way, you know, yeah. um, or anyone um, yeah. that way. Could, you know, could you share, and like you said, it's only going to be a piece of it because there's so much to it, but could you share like some of the conditions, like some of the things that happened mm. at your previous institution that led, you know, that led to that point where you were feeling like, I just want all this pain to go away. Like, what yeah. were they doing? Like, what was going on there? Oh my gosh. Um, within, within the first few weeks it started and I don't know how things would have been different if I truly were alone, (laughs) but I wasn't even alone. Um, I was hired in a cohort of seven people, um, almost half of which who have since left the institution and, um, half of us were black. Half of those, there were, there were three black professors, um, uh, two of us have since left, and it was a diverse group. Co- the cohort model in academia does help um, targeted groups not feel so alone. And part of the reason why I think things unraveled so quickly is because I had people to talk to and say, "Hey, did this? They said this to me. Did they say this to you? Or I'm trying to access this resource." Do you have trouble accessing this resource too? Or my contract says I should get this, but the dean is telling me I can't get that. Huh? Like those type of things happen very quickly. And I might not have known the degree of what was occurring if I wasn't able to bounce off, you know, in a live sort of moment, other people who did have the same exact contract as me um, or other people who did have, um, you know, was in the same space and place and and setting as I was um, and heard things. And I just didn't have to process alone. I didn't have to process, did I hear that correctly? Am I tripping? Um, and having that, you know, uh, opportunity to engage with people who are also new to the institution and learning the current culture and realizing, yeah, it's not me. Everybody is noticing that it's some weird stuff going on and this is not healthy. All of that happened very quickly. And I think part of why I was able to um, notice that is because of having the resource of being able to process with other people who were new also. Some of the things that happened, again, within the first few weeks was attending a um, faculty colloquium where and these were always so fun for me from um, where I did my doctoral program at Washington St. Louis. I had an amazing doctoral experience. 
I, I now have, after that, I have the very high standards of what doctoral education should be because it was wonderful for me. And so entering into a space where I was immediately seeing that doctoral students were not being treated fairly or um, not having the opportunity, the full opportunities of experience they deserve was really disheartening. And so when there's new, when, when academia is interviewing, you know, this process, when somebody's coming in for a job talk, they give this colloquium talk and faculty and, and sometimes students are there to listen. These were at WashU really exciting for me because it's like, this is the cutting edge research. Literally, this is about to be hot off the press of what somebody in our field is doing. And I'm eager to learn and engage and have conversation and, and, and critical conversation too. Like this is the place to kind of work table, workshop some things that could be improved. Like this is, this is the spot. This is the hub. So I was super excited to go to my first colloquium. Um, it was on a Friday at like two. <laughs> Hardly anybody was there. Um, but I went to the first one and that is where it all started. Um, the talk itself was problematic in the implications, the implicit implications that the speaker was providing. And I don't know if she recognized it or not, but there was no way I was going to be in that space and hear those implicit implications and not question or speak to or bring up the potential danger of them. So it took a very long time for me to even collect my words. Um, and I actually wrote down my questions that I would ask and read them. And they were scientific inquiry style questions on theory and methods like any, any good academician does in science. And interestingly enough, half, half of the attendees were black folks and there's one Asian woman and the rest were white. And when it came to the time for Q&A, all the Black people had questions, and we asked our questions, provided opportunity for conversation and response. And across the room, everybody had the feeling like, oh, this didn't go too well <laughs> before we even went there. But not too long after the talk ended, one of the senior white women in the room sent out a, a listserv a message to the listserv of over 50, 60, however many faculty, again, most of which who weren't even there, but um, saying something to the extent of watch how you ask your questions when you go to colloquium. Um, we want people to walk away thinking of this as a welcoming place. So just watch how you talk, watch how you ask your questions. And it gave the impression that somebody said something inappropriate or in a in a demeaning or problematic way when that at all was not that was not the case at all um anyway so that was the first jab that happened because I got that and I'm like the only people who asked questions were black okay so here's a white woman saying something about black people's inquiry and how it might not be appropriate or something it was perplexing anyhow that set off a series of then events and continued escalating 
violences that occurred beyond the tone policing itself. Um, Can I just jump in real quick? Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Um, Because I want to hear about all that. But I think even with what you're saying with this example, I mean, there's just so much with just this Mm -hmm. one example because it's like, it's not, hey, we're going to think more carefully about who we bring and Mm -hmm. what their research is and what they're presenting about and make sure right? Like there's no responsibility to that. It's we're bringing in these people. You need to be nice to them Mm -hmm. as if you weren't nice. Right. And you need to be appropriate. And you know, all these words that get weaponized, especially Mm -hmm. within social work. And then the people reading it, it's just kind of like, they have no idea what happened. So now everyone's just asking each other what happened, I'm sure. And it just gets filtered Mm -hmm. through all those layers. So I just wanted to like, Yeah. Thank, thank you for exactly. Yes. To all of that. And one of the, I'll plug a resource here real quick, um, is a book in the distance, so I can't get, grab the, the, um, primary author's name, but it's called black women's liberatory pedagogies. And that book, um, in part is what allowed me to survive until I found Twitter. And one of the things that authors talks about is the tyranny of niceness in academia, in white academia. And yeah, that is so you're this is dangerous. What's being said is dangerous about black people. You're not going to say that you want us to be quiet because you want to be nice. Exactly. So it's just layer on layer of racism, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it, it's so it's so layered. Um, anyhow, that ballooned, at, but it was the it was the seed that unveiled a lot of stuff that was already there. Um, of course, it it just started the conversation. Um, and in that same day, in that same day, Shimon, that day was a Friday. Um, I go from that colloquium to then kind of around the office, like, hey, did you get the email? Did What's your thoughts? And you were there. And, you know, senior person says, yeah, I was there. The questions were great. I'm confused. I don't know what was going on. But that's weird. Like, that's not an appropriate email to send out. Like, these informal kind of things happen. And so I make my way down the hall to the search chair who had brought the person in. And just a group of faculty, probably about five people standing around, just started to talk about, yeah, it didn't go so well. And, you know, I don't further engage why I'm just like yeah, everybody's on the same page of yeah it didn't go so well but our reasons are different and those you know matter um but there wasn't a it wasn't the right space to engage why especially after getting this email telling me to shut up like <laughs> anyway in this is less than 10 minutes from the talk the search chair is informally having a discussion she's a senior white person the rest of us are junior and we then talk about it a little bit, but then move on to the rest of the search process. And she then asks me about a candidate um, who's applying and um, who I've recommended to apply. And it's like, yeah, this is an amazing scholar. Yes, like absolutely. We should bring him in and all this. And she proceeds to ask me his sexual orientation. Um wow. Ask me a black man's sexual orientation in a very disparaging way. She, and quote, said, so is he gay or what? And in that moment, I'm like, I literally just met this woman. 
I have no connection. No, there's no rapport. There is, I am, and sh- and she's tenured and I'm not. And I have to say in that moment, that is not, first of all, it doesn't matter. And second of all, like, why, what? Like, that's not an appropriate question to ask. And even if I knew, I wouldn't tell you. Right, and right. then she pressed, then she pressed and said, well, we were just kind of, fi- we were just asking because we couldn't figure it out. And I had to say, well, the way sexual orientation works is that you don't know when you see someone. So here I am providing this like one-on-one level. <sighs> and, you know, that that was what, 10 minutes after the first and second. And, you know, so um yeah, it just, it, things like that happen on a regular basis. And I'm not going to not say anything in the moment because if you're doing this here, what are you doing in class? And so if I don't say something, I'm fa- I'm failing to protect people in a way that I can't ignore. And I, without going into extreme detail, um, homophobia and, and, and heterocentrism was that drop that sent me over the top into my suicide attempt. It literally was the drop that was on top of the mountain. And I'm a heterosexual, identify as a heterosexual woman. Like I'm married to a man that I'm not even the most vulnerable of, of spaces and identities in that. And I'm like, just to be honest, that, Something that was related to that topic is that thing that literally took me over the edge. So you cannot be um, so reckless that you think that it's less harmful to bring your oppression to someone who is not in a minoritized group, but because you don't know the complexity of who you're talking to. I'll stop there. (laughs) I'll just stop there. There's a lot. I, because there's a lot. And I think that people think, okay, I need to improve my behavior when I'm in the presence of historically oppressed people and be careful about how I treat them. Yes, that's true. But also this has to be an internal transformative process that creates you into a healthier person, regardless of who you're in front of, because you don't know what is beneath what you see and and what's, you know, only so much is skin deep. You cannot think that it's less reckless for you to um, be transphobic in front of cisgender people. That's not less reckless. You don't know. You don't know. You, You don't know the impact that you could have. And so, yeah, I want people to be more careful about how they treat Black folks, like, yeah, I want people to be more care- careful about how they treat um, openly gay, bisexual, um, or otherwise sexual minoritized people. But I want you to just be careful in life. Like, I-, I need I need you to critically assess why you hurry up and lock the door when someone of a particular look walks past and you don't do it for someone else. Those are the moments that will translate into healthier corporate and academic spaces because that's not about who sees me. That's about my behavior 
by when I'm by myself. And to it's naive to think that that doesn't translate to behavior when you're around other people. And so I am not immune to perpetuating anti-Blackness and I'm a Black woman. So if I'm not immune, I'm gonna need you to think as a white person that yes, that's possible for you to do and probably likely that you're doing that in some way, even if you don't recognize it yet. That the yet is the potential and the hope. I think that people can um, become enlightened in ways that um, help them grow and contribute to a safer society and safer societies. You know, with just that Friday that you're talking about, right? It's this contrast of um, you can't, if you bring up something about racism and you ask questions to this presenter, that's inappropriate. That's not nice. That's problematic. But then if this other person says something like they, that person can then say whatever they want. Right. And ask this question in this like disparaging way, like questioning. And then, then follow up with the justification. Right. <laughs> Which is also like, this is a hiring process. Like on top of like, just, the like, common human decency about it <laughs> layers <laughs> that's yeah. illegal in some in some places in some places that is illegal <laughs> so um so then how where did how did things go from there because i know there uh, you know the one of the things you've um shared about has been what happened around tenure um mm. but before we get to that is there anything you want to cover that happened before that process, or do you want to get into that process now? What happened? Oh that gosh, let me thank thank you for that important question. Um, as I mentioned, there's a lot that has happened that I haven't always shared, but there are some things that I know that I will share at some point because they are so critically important for people to know. Um, and so, I have selected our conversation today to provide you. Um, exclusive insight and the space for me to share something that openly that I've never shared before about something really dangerous that happened. And I want people to know about it because it means that one, it could happen to them. And two, this is how violence and abuse shows up in academia. Sometimes if people can't pinpoint examples, they find it difficult to understand. Um, and so before I, um, I, I decided fairly early on after that Friday um, and the subsequent um, faculty meetings that I was going to bring my full self, um, regardless of what the consequences or outcomes meant for tenure. And I said that in my very first faculty meeting, I said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to continue bringing all of me. And if that means I don't get tenure, it's fine. Because that doesn't define me. And the only way for me to stay true to myself and my roots is for me to just bring all of myself. I was encouraged in public. Yes, bring all of yourself. And even on the side. Yes, Maxine, thank you. You're so vulnerable. You're so bold. Thank you. Yes, please. Current administration, please keep speaking up. All of the things that you would expect to hear. Um, but of course, nobody's going to. Well, anyway. <laughs> um, so there was something that happened 
So from 2018 to 2020, I was all of myself and unapologetically so in a professional manner because I care about people. Let me just breathe. <laughs> um, after George Floyd was murdered, there was a recognizable silence from the administration of uh, particularly the dean of, of my former institution in the School of Social Work. And being in that place of pain as a Black woman in America and as a mother of two Black sons and having Black brothers and Black and black husband in the midst of COVID, <laughs> um, there was no way that I was not going to say something. And it was, a, there was a long silence, noticeable, to, especially for the field of social work. And so uh, the, the convention of the department was often to communicate over listserv and have conversations over listserv, which is not the culture of every department, but it was for this particular one. And I simply said, we hear the silence. The silence is deafening. I wouldn't say that the same way because now I think about that as a potentially ableist framing. But I said this, something to the attune of the silence is deafening and followed up. People knew what I was talking about immediately, um, but followed up with, you know, perhaps, perhaps we need to think about our power that we have as faculty in choosing our leadership. And maybe it's time to have someone, maybe there's implicitly, I said, maybe there's, you know, maybe I'm asking something that someone doesn't have to give. And as faculty, we need to think about, is this what we want? Do we want to have our administration be silent in moments like this? So I said this. And not too long after, I was surprised to um, get a Zoom invitation request from the university lawyer. Um, that conversation reflected the epitome of misusing university resources for personal gain, because painfully what the lawyer told me and, and framed the conversation as was that my dean at the time inquired about options of suing me for essentially critiquing him publicly on a public forum, which is a faculty listserv, and characterized essentially my behavior to the university lawyer as harassing him and creating a uh, hostile environment for him. Now, all of this is an email. Um, so the university lawyer tells me, Dr. Davis, you're a very smart woman. And but this, some of this is documented. So if, if, ev if ever there is, uh, the need to bring this to light. <laughs> like I, I have the receipts. I have the receipts. Let's just mm -hmm. say that. Um, and this was on a Zoom call. So put let's put two and two together. Um, but the university lawyer um, said, Dr. Davis, you're a very smart woman. And I have been asked to review some conversations and materials. And from everything that I've reviewed, there's nothing that you've done wrong. And it 
doesn't rise to any level of action for harassment or hostile, (laughs) creating a hostile environment towards my dean as a junior faculty member um, to my dean who presents as a white man. And in that moment, at this point, I'm two years in, so much has happened. And the pleasantries that I might have when first speaking to the University of Texas Arlington lawyer might have been a little different from what I said at this moment. But at this point, there had been a rapport built. And I said, Shelby, his name is Shelby. I said, Shelby, are you kidding me? How in the world, like, how, how, how do you encounter and deal with this on a daily basis? Like, how, are you okay? <laughs> um, and I, I said something to the tune of like, how do you deal with this? And he said to me, Maxine, it's been a very long nine years. And that conversation, again, to me was so powerful because it was an attempt at intimidation. It was an attempt of silencing me, of being vocal about um, interdepartmental um, uh, compliance with white supremacy and refusal to address anti-Black racism wherever it occurs. And it was a power play. Absolutely. I mean, when I tell people about, and this is why it's important for me to share this verbally and not in a print sort of setting, because this is a story that I only share in, in you know, in spaces like this, right, where somebody can digest what's happening moment by moment. Um, because if I, if I just say, yeah, my dean tried to sue me while I was on faculty for talking, for literally talking, I don't think people would understand or they might they might not even understand what that could look like or what that is or how that happens. But my understanding of all of that, and like I said, it's documented. So (laughs) that is a hundred percent what happened. And when I tell that story to people who have been in the game of academia for years, decades, they are blown away with the emboldenedness of someone to do such so flippantly. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, like, I think, I mean, thanks first. Thank you for sharing that. And it's, it is so extreme and so ludicrous um, Mm -hmm. for, for the Dean, for the Dean to do that. And, and, um, and I think part of the issue with part of what's hard about these like super toxic work environments that are beyond like there's like layers of toxicity, right? Cause there could be like mm-hmm. toxic work environments just based on like interpersonal dynamics of people of like the same race or gender or yeah. class and, yeah. and se- you know, sexual orientation. And then you add the toxicity of like, you've got racism, you've got mm-hmm. sexism, you've got heterosex, like you've got these layers of oppression that are like, adding to the toxicity but and are embedded in it so it's very hard Mm -hmm. to like separate any of that out it's just all boom like yeah and then when and then when people are like sharing about it and like i've felt this way and you tell me what you think but like i felt this way when i've written some stuff out about like what i experienced where i was at um Mm -hmm. when i read it or when i see the list of a couple things it doesn't even touch 
mm-hmm. what it felt like or what it really just what it was like to experience it. And so I just ho- hope people listening can understand because I think when you haven't gone through it and I'm not saying I went through like what you went through because we're different people and the positionality and the dynamics are different. But like I had our director, you know, say in a meeting that I was slandering um them, the program. And I said, no, I'm sharing my experiences. Like, cause I was like mm-hmm. saying stuff, some stuff on Twitter of like what was happening at the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, I got told, um, I got asked, you know, is everything okay at home? <laughs> because I'm upset that, people like colleagues and administration aren't taking action on about racism, that they're enacting Mm -hmm. racism and covering it up with social Mm -hmm. work lingo, you know? And so there are like these similarities, right. Of like, of that. And, and, and for people listening who like haven't experienced it, I think it's very hard to understand what it's like Mm -hmm. to go through it. Cause it ends up just being like, well, there was this and there was this mm-hmm. and there was this, but it's like, it's the daily stress of living. Th- <laughs> yes. It's violent. Yeah. yeah. It's the daily assault that add up. Yeah. And it's like, it takes a huge toll, right? Like, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it almost took the ultimate toll. Right. For you. And so this, so, so this is new information because you haven't shared about this before about being threatened with a lawsuit by your dean while your faculty. <laughs> I mean, it's so with, with the university lawyer, with the, un- right. So the university lawyer is going to take you to court. Yeah. Yeah. That, that part is really, um, I think particularly important to pay attention to because it's, even if that happened, that would not be um, like, even if there were legitimate, like, like this was a legitimate thing that occurred, that would be a personal litigation um, or there would be a filing of um, some sort of report. There's no, there was no filing of no reports, no, no complaints were ever formally filed against me. Like, all of the ways that you know of as an administrator to handle, if that truly was the case, all of that was obfuscated. And so that in itself tells you just on a basic level that there's some ulterior motive, something else is going on with this tactic. And this is pre, this is before the tenure situation? Yes. Yes. So then... This is the person who ultimately evaluates me and denies me um, the opportunity to continue on the tenure track in my mid-tenure review, despite having met and exceeded metrics that are laid out. Um, and I, it's super important that you highlight the relevance and possibility of this type of violence and abuse occurring um, amongst shared social positions, people, hands down, some of the worst stuff, which I tried for the longest to not talk about, um, the most painful thing that I encountered across that entire time um, was experiencing 
the anti-Black racism from the only Black tenured administrator um, who was second in command under the primary dean, the uh, Black woman associate dean. Um, that hurts a different level. And people who've experienced that know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, and for the longest time, my my, I wanted to protect, you know, um, Black folks have, if we have our stuff, the world is already thinking of us as one type of way. We're going to do everything we can not to bring our issues to light. And, you know, but it got to that place in the 10-year review where what she wrote was lies and characterized me in this um, angry Black woman trope that did not accurately reflect any of my behavior um, or any any of my interactions. And then now I have a group of faculty member who wrote a statement to support me and verify my account of what occurred. But I did not want to talk openly about a Black woman's role in perpetuating and up- upholding the white supremacy and um, violence that her white male counterpart was largely facilitating. Um, That was really hard. But once it presented in my tenure review materials, it became enough, enough of enough was enough. I had to say something and call it what it was. So just to recap, you start working there. There's this, situation where someone's presenting research in a way about in a way that's harmful to black people you and other black faculty and colleagues were there question it um in the presentation and an email goes out so basically the message is um don't you know don't speak this way right it's policing that but then that person can those then admin Um, can say whatever they want they can do whatever they want so then when george floyd is murdered and you are questioning you bring up the silence of that once again you know you can't do that you can't question leadership you can't question administration you get threatened with a lawsuit which is like one of the ultimate weapons right of to silence someone and then and i know there's like a lot within there that you're leaving out of all along that and then you are denied the continuation on the tenure track and a lot comes up in your in that deny in that in that denial and you know i was hoping you can get i just want to make sure mm-hmm. i'm recapping it clearly that there's this consistent message of silencing yes right and if you don't get the message right mm-hmm. if you don't conform and get in line mm-hmm. Yep. To the way things are done here, which are uh, oppressive, then oppressive. Yeah. we're going to hurt you. We're going to mm-hmm. hurt you in the way, in, you know, and when you're on tenure track, one of the biggest ways to be hurt is someone can hurt is to deny tenure or deny the continuation on that track. Yeah. And it was, I mean, uh, outside of academia, it's it translates to. For, for many people, you you got fired because that's what the con- the consequence was that I could no longer work there after a follow up 
grace year. And yeah, the, the, the general uh, track of, of what you recapped is accurate um, along with, again, all the stuff in between, but yeah, those are the peaks of, of, of what, what occurred. Um, And in between all of those peaks at the very beginning, I went to the, I went to meet with the, I met with the university president during my first year in faculty. And at the time it was a man of color and he did not hesitate to schedule me as soon as possible. And I didn't, he was supportive in every possible way that you could imagine. And when I told him about some of the stuff that was happening, he, along with the HR director, the three of us met together, affirmed that these things are not, yes, that is strange. Yes, that is inappropriate. I can't believe that. There Actually, there wasn't, I can't believe that's happening. It was affirmation of, yes, none of this is okay. I, I now know that administration has for a long time known about what was happening, um, but, you know, was limited in what they could do. Um, but that president, Kabari, is the only president who met with me. Um, after he resigned and the interims then took place, I continue to alert provosts at office level and above of things that were happening. Um, the provost office was helpful in, in certain circumstances and did provide support in the ways that they could. Um, but things were so bad that I got to a point where I had to go to the provost office to ask for the dean to put an item that I wanted to talk about on the faculty agenda. Usually when faculty just wanna talk about an item in a faculty meeting, it's added, but there's a, nobody has to go to the provost for that. Yeah, that, that's, <laughs> um, and it that's, was about, wow. and, and it was about something particular at the School of Social Work that was about um, anti-Black racism, potentially from a, a student. So of course, I. I, I definitely gonna stand up for students and and you know we need to talk about we needed this particular thing we really needed to talk about. Um, they would not add it to the agenda for a faculty meeting. Dean Scott Ryan, and it's very clear because sometimes it's they and some and much of the time it was just him. And it's an email, yeah, it's an email. Um, this was one of the times that. I think even the provost's office was fed up. And the response that the provost representative gave was a full faculty, like full distinguished faculty member, um, said something to uh, something to the can of, are you kidding me? You can't even run a faculty meeting? Like we have a problem. Put Maxine's stuff on the agenda and leave me the hell alone. She did not say that, let me be clear. But <laughs> like, this was the, the sentiment of the engagement. And, and this is another place where he consulted the university lawyer, apparently. Um, at, least, at least that was what was in his response. There was something about, and she said, we do not need to go to the university lawyer for, for Robert's rules type of stuff. Like she did say in writing something that kind of, aren't you tired? like of doing this to people. Wow. Anyway, 
then the item was added and we talked about it. Um, so there's so, Shimon, there's so many things like that over time, over time, over time. Um, and one of the first things I went to Twitter about was during COVID and I've, everybody's transitioning to uh, working from home and I needed some noise canceling headphones because I got two babies who I'm homeschooling and trying to conduct work and, you know, research and teaching and all the stuff. And I'm trying to order some headphones from the university website link. Anyway, I go to Twitter and I say, is anybody else having trouble ordering headphones? Headphones is a legitimate, like, teaching research startup, what you would use your startup funds for, or am I tripping? Because at this point, I'm like, maybe I just need to check outside of my university. And I asked, and Brittany Cooper, um, who's at Rutgers, who I now have pleasure of being on, on faculty with, um, who writes, has written prolifically about um, anti-feminism and feminism and just being a Black woman and just the whole nine yards. Brittany Cooper's work is 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 really great. Um, she replied back and was like, yep, sounds perfectly normal to me. Like, sounds like legitimate, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? Um, but the University of Lawyer was again brought in when I tried to order headphones and had to provide perspective on something as mundane as that. The lawyer, they brought in the lawyer for you to order a pair of headphones for your work. It, it was, it, Scott, I'm not, I'm not questioning. (laughs) I'm just, I'm just saying like, that is some, you can, that is just some real like ridiculousness. So this is a, this is another example. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad we got to, throw this in real quick because one of the things that one of the types of retaliation and forms of abuse that um, people think is not possible is like if you have a contract these are the contract these are my startup funds this is what I have access to this is my you know all of my startup package as um, someone on the tenure track is what I need to facilitate getting my research and off the ground or or being set up in a new state and, and city, whatever. Um, this is, these are my equipment, all of this stuff. It differs across the discipline, but you know, it's specific to the type of work that you do. Um, and as you know, on my research agenda, I, I have a, a course piece that looks at um, hip hop music and I've done some work um, with uh, uh, university or I'm sorry, high school um, um Black and Afro-Latina girls. Anyway, um, so like it fits within the requirements of of what I need to conduct my work. Um, But this is a very, very, very small example of of someone who's who's behaving in an inappropriate way and being toxic in academia, preventing your access to resources. So this type of thing, happened across a number of areas in my contracts. And this type of thing, actually the access to our full summer salary um, in the first year um, and the access to the resources to hire um, postdocs and uh, research assistants 
I had to go to the provost's office, myself and another colleague, um, had to go to the provost's office in order to serve as a mediator for the dean to give us what was in our contract. And that, above everything else, I think is what much of this retaliation spawned from. Um, because how dare you, you know? I would have never known what to do in that process had it not been for Dr. Ryan Cobb, who was on faculty with me at the time, who knew academia very well and said and suggested, I think we need to go to the provost to have us, because we tried to advocate for ourselves and get what was in our contract. And um, he was the first person who said, I think this is where we need to go in order to get this. And ultimately, um, ultimately, we did get access to it. Um, but, and I'll say this, of the seven of us, only myself and Ryan, we got the summer salary, everybody across all seven. If you wanted to get access to the rest of what was in your contract, you had to do that individually and you had to you had to demand that. I demanded it and I got it and was able to hire who I needed for my team. Um, but that, you know, ultimately there were people in my cohort who were not able to access their full startup resources because they did they weren't willing to and totally understand why, especially in a vulnerable position, but um a faculty member shouldn't be put in that position where they have to decide if they're going to demand their resources or not and the potential consequences of that. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, thank you for, for spotlighting that as another type of way this kind of stuff shows up. And it's, it's it, it can be very, you know, innocuous at first until you realize what the heck is going on. I mean, one of, one of the things that the dean told me was that we don't have this money. And so I'm like, wait, what? You hired me? There are two things, one of two things. Either you have the money and you're lying to me, which, yes, that's a problem. Or you hired me and you don't have this money. That's a problem. So in my first year, I walked myself right on over to the account, the, the university, uh, accountants and see all CPAs and sat in front of these three white CPAs and said, what is going on? I need somebody to look at the accounts wherever they are and see if the money is there. And they told me, Dr. Davis, yes, the money is there. Work with your dean. I'm sure you'll get access to what you need. And you're talking about being blown away. That like, is <laughs> Well, and also it's like, it's like, what's the message? Like, well, we don't have the money. What do you think I'm going to do? Just sit here and be like, oh, okay. It's like, right. <laughs> like what? I'm, I'm going to take one for the team or something? <laughs> like, I don't even know y'all like that. Like, we can get, I'm committed to, you know, environmental <laughs> support, but you ain't about to do that to me on semester one, day one. Like, yeah, if we encounter some rough patches, I'm I'm down to sacrifice. I don't even know y'all like that. No. No, you pull that from wherever you need to pull it from to make it happen. So, but but it was there all along. That's the thing. Right. There were so there were so many lies. He was messing with you. Oh, there were lot lie. He lied constantly. Constantly. So another another thing, you know, you had 
shared with me at one point is one of the things that they took issue with in in the tenure uh, review was that you were involved with um, political engagement in the form of a protest, right? Like on the campus. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that too and what that issue was about? Oh gosh. Um, uh, For annual reviews on the tenure track and in academia in general, there are guidelines for what you're supposed to be assessing um, and they should fall within the scope of what you've done and accomplished in terms of teaching, research, and service. And um, most universities have rejected the idea of adding a fourth category titled collegiality or something like that. Um, And so people recognize the potential of, of evaluating someone's collegiality, the danger that could occur in that and it being a potential space that holds weight as much as your research, teaching, and service, which is a bit more objective. Well, uh, it's not in the purview of the UT system to evaluate collegiality. Uh, However, um, this is what essentially occurred in my third year review. And these comments that had absolutely nothing to do with the criteria that were supposed to be evaluated, ended up by the associate deans who the uh, black woman, Deborah Woody wrote these comments and then the other associate deans to other women um, voted in favor uh, of the position not to um, renew me as did the dean, despite the faculty uh, voting opposite um, and in support. Um, anyhow, the, um, this is where, this is where the inappropriate comments in my mid-tenure review occurred. At the associate dean level, um, and conflating collegiality with service and essentially, um, just their own personal evaluation of of me and my activities that I did on my own time um, and put, they put them in the service category. Um, And one of the things Dr. Woody said, um, I wish I had it in front of me to read it verbatim, um, but it was something akin to um, people have a fear of me in the department or something like this. And um, also I'm uh, in protests that where I'm holding a sign that says UTA hates black mothers. And first of all, my sign that I was holding said something like doctors for Brianna and journey, um, a student who was, um, being outspoken about her experiences as a black student at UTA. Um, The person I was standing next to, their sign did say UTA hates black mothers, but somehow that was cast upon me as um, something that I should have had control over. I'm not really certain what the context is. There's no way that should have ended up in my evaluation. And this was a protest, um, Black Lives Matter-esque protest that was in a, a, piece was done in the Dallas Morning News. 
Um, however, given my experiences up to that moment, I had no problem actually standing next to that person because given the university's treatment of me thus far, and I'm a mother, <laughs> I I had no leg to stand on. I had no body of evidence to object to what she was saying. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I did not object. And I, it doesn't matter. It, it should not have mattered if I did or didn't. Um, again, my sign that I was holding said doctors for a journey and Brianna, this mother and daughter duo. And yet somehow this, these type of things were put into my evaluation. Um, and my engagement in public protest is political engagement. Explicitly, the UT system says that's not supposed to be something that you evaluate people on for a good reason, as you can imagine where that could go as it yeah. did. And in um, social work, and that's in supposed social to be work, part of actually our ethics, yes, to do that, actually, to do it exactly. That's supposed to be in favor of useful service to community, if anything. Um, but that was not how it was used or framed. Um, and again, in context of many other problematic statements that were made in that. Um, block quote of the review. Um, but that was an example of one thing that stood out. And also um, these these lies uh, that were put in the review, um, I ultimately asked the provost and president, um, even an administration higher up, I'd, this needs to be removed from my file. And that is not a unusual request when things like this happened. I later talked with someone, uh, Black faculty um, in the UT system who had something similar occur where something wrong and inappropriate was put into her review by her superior. They went to the provost and it was removed. That did not happen in my case. And in fact, I never heard a response um, wow. to my request. while, And this is while I was on faculty there. I've provided many opportunities and have yet to date had that request um, granted, despite how egregious things are actually in print. Um, it's not a subjective matter, at least the, the appropriateness of these being allowed to stay in my file. So, um, yeah, I tried to have that um, removed and it wasn't. I also know that you know what you've shared with me that you filed a complaint with the council on social work education just so people listening know Mm -hmm. that's the accrediting the nationally accrediting organization that you know accredits schools of social work to be accredited and that's why like if you get a degree from that program it's valid and you can eventually get licensed and all that Mm -hmm. right like this is the accrediting body that has certain standards and policies that all these accredited programs are supposed to adhere to. Um, yeah. So you filed a complaint with them. What, you know, what was the response to that? I guess, what was the complaint and what was the response to the complaint? Um, first, I think that uh, CSWE, it is problematic that CSWE is the only place to 
file something like this in terms of holding the profession accountable and the requirements for filing a complaint like that um, require you to outline what particular violations occurred according to um, failures to meet the uh, the commitment of of providing sound education. Um, I provided the argument that the things that I described and what I pointed to did, um, in fact, present a case for not meeting um, and and were worthy of investigation and and sanction to for for the school of social work to align themselves um, in ways that would prevent this from happening to other people. Um, I think there's a lot of unknown that happens behind the scenes and in, in, in bodies like this. And sometimes it can be as simple as how you frame something that, you know, might need to be presented in a different way or it might need more evidence or whatnot. Um, but the requirements there, um, one of which that I think is really troublesome is that the person filing the complaint, even if they're while they're still on faculty or they're no longer there or they're a student or whatever their role is, you have to send the complaint and its entirety to the dean of the school. Well, when the dean of the school is the person responsible for perpetrating these things, it puts me in a very awkward position um, and it, it doesn't provide the safety that you would want to have with something like that. Um, and so when I submitted the report, I, although I was no longer on faculty, I was still in the very early process of healing and I could not communicate with him. I could not simply put his name on an email. I couldn't do it. I could not do it, but I needed to submit the complaint. I did mm -hmm. it anyhow. And I submitted the complaint. Um, with the president's name at the time, uh, the interim president was uh, Dr. Lim. I sent it to Dr. Lim instead of Dean Ryan. Um, and ultimately, it was not accepted by CSWE because one of the one of the things was that it was not sent to Dean Ryan. Um, so that's a fault not on, I think, not on the staff, but on a procedural error not procedural error, error um, uh, but but the policy around that needs to change um, in order for people to make complaints and um, for their own safety, not be subjected to interactions with the person who may be perpetrating violence against them or being inappropriate with them. And so that was one of two reasons. I can't remember the other one that I believe there were two, but that was the main one that disqualified my submission from continuing further. So I um, have, am since now in a place where obviously, oh, maybe not obviously, but I have healed to a degree that I could submit that complaint again and put his email on there and be perfectly fine with it. Um, but I have not done that. Um, and I've planned to, um, but I haven't committed to doing that again because I don't know if it's worth it for what I have to give emotionally to be able to do it. Um, but I could do it now. I could resubmit it if I wanted to. And that, you know, um, I would feel 
you know, that the staff could do everything that was in their power. Yeah, I think one of the, and I've given this feedback in a meeting and in writing to mm-hmm. administration and CSWE that mm-hmm. this complaint process mm-hmm. is highly problematic. Yeah. Um, it puts the burden on the person or persons who have already been harmed to right. relive it, to document, you know, to, to mm-hmm. it assumes that this, the dean it's going to go to or the program <laughs> chair or whatever is going to handle it well. Um, and so, it's altruistic. <laughs> right. Like, I, I also think of like if a student is having an issue in a program and they file it, like now they're a total mm-hmm. target, you know, which they probably right. already have been somewhat but because they've maybe been vocal but even if it's someone who's just been observing things and isn't vocal now they're known um and you know there's just one of the biggest issues with all of this is that there's like where do you go for accountability where do you go when at every level Mm -hmm. and this is that whole part of like when people talk about systems being broken and then it's like, no, mm-hmm. they were actually designed to be this way. Yep. <laughs> right. Yeah, like mission accomplished. Yeah. Yeah. Because you go to your first, you're just trying to bring stuff up in a, in a meeting or you right. go through a process that you need to go through. And at every level you're getting problems or there's problems and, and there's just no one else to go. There's like no other mm-hmm. level you can go to. You've gone to the provost, you've gone to the president, you tried with your dean but it's coming from the dean it's coming from other administrators it's coming from colleagues and you go to the accrediting body and it's like you know and they'll and they'll mm-hmm. have you know and the accrediting body well you didn't you didn't follow our procedure while well, your procedure's mm-hmm. pro- a problem There's, yeah you yeah. know yeah it's no but yet on paper it's like anti-racism this and anti-racism mm-hmm. that it's like yeah okay okay this is this is a great point to to um, bring our our conversation to a close in a way that provides some hope, which is always important for me. Um, because to leave hopeless is it might be real, it might be real, but if there's something I can do beyond this, I think it's important to highlight. And so, I want to talk about this exact point of um, of creating. Uh, places that actually hold people accountable and my efforts to do that and, and what will be coming uh, in the future. Um, I went, I, I went to the highest, uh, eventually went to AAUP uh, recently for them to open an investigation. Um, and unfortunately, because it was a year after I left, it took me a year just to heal. I mean, like you got to provide space for people to recount all of this and gather all and go back through all the emails and text messages and, capture all this stuff. That is a very painful process. Anyhow, I was ineligible, despite um, the AAUP administration being very supportive and um, uh, very um, sympathetic to what had occurred um, because I was past the cutoff point of how long you have to file when something like this happens. There was nothing they could do to investigate, but they are available um, and have for many faculty um, across institutions been the only place of recourse in relationship to retaliation and, and tenure and all kinds of um, things. Uh, Erlene on 
Twitter describes her experience and that's recounted in AAUP report. Um, and I think one of her tagline is refired. She didn't just retire, which is very much true in terms of a common um, tactic, especially when it comes to ageism. People force people into retirement when in actuality, no, they did not choose to retire. You fired them and you just want to make it look like they retired. So shout out to her for uh, doing that in social work and naming refired <laughs> as, as what she experienced. Um, AAUP did expose that. Um, so going forward, I think AAUP really needs to think about the parameters in which someone can file and potentially adjust those to account for all of the process that happens as a human and what it takes to file. Um, but they don't currently. Um, and I've asked uh, my mentors who are presidents and, and board directors. And I have, I have a team of people who love and support me across the nation. So that is beautiful. Um, this brought people out of the woodwork um, to let me know that I'm not alone. And so now I have, personal like text relationships with university presidents and like and and just a, a wealth of of resources to draw upon anyhow i recently asked one of these um uh, new mentors i acquired who the person across all type of academia is there anything else beyond the aaup to hold institutions and departments accountable and he said unfortunately not um for me, it, that response was a relief in that I did, I literally did everything I could. There wasn't something I missed, you know, um, the same is, same type of thing with EEOC. They have a limit on what you can claim. And I decided that I did not want to sue because it would be um, too much of a burden on my family. And my family has went through enough. And the exchange was that I talk about it as much as I want. And ain't nobody trying to don't look, don't come, don't even try to come with no settlement, no nothing. You cannot shut me up. Like I, the the gift in exchange for not suing is that I tell it all. There's no um, non disclosure agreement, you know, like all those things that could come with that. Anyhow, so going forward, we need to think about broader uh, mechanisms to hold institutions accountable and provide. Um, some ways to to for for particularly black folks who in many cases are the most vulnerable. Um, this is an identity you can't hide usually. And it, it, it just in 2022, this is not where we should be. Anyway, um, so what I'm doing uh, going forward is I'll be forming a um, resource that is an academic green book. Um, and I'm sure you know about the green book that allowed black people to travel safely across the U.S. Um, decades before. Um, this is this is what we need at this point in time. Hopefully we get to a place where we don't need that. Um, but I'll be creating um, in partnership with others a, a place where people can go to and say this is a verified, generally safe space for you to be on the tenure track. Um, they're generally speaking a, ver a verified safe place for you to be on faculty in other capacities um, and intend to build that up to scale. First, it'll be in social work, of course, and build that up for the, for the discipline of social work. 
Um, and as a counterpoint, that, that is what gets the most energy as a counterpoint. Of course, you have to have an academic red book to say, halt, do not, I don't care whatever you do, you do not go here. You do not go here because it could cost you your life. Like this is not, it could cost you everything, your, your well-being, your, yourself, like your mental health, it could really cost you. Do not go here. And for as long as it's moderate, monitored by um, the procedures I'll put in place with that, again, and not in isolation, but in collaboration, um, that'll be something we release every year and is a starting place for at least people to know formally kind of like where to stay away from. Because once I talk to people, I just wasn't connected to the right people to know. People have known about UTA for a long time, especially black folks. Same with and where I was at. Cause as soon I as just, I started connecting with people, they were like, Oh yeah, we already know about that. Yeah. I just didn't know. And, yeah. and yeah, I, I want to formalize that. Yes. Relationships and stuff is, is, is critical. Talk to people who, who might know insights. Yes. I encourage all of that, but I'm committed to right putting this down on accessible resources where people can go and say who's on the list, who's not on the list, and and the criteria to be on the list is very high. Um, and it's possible to not be on the green book and not be on the red book. That just means you haven't done something super egregious, but you really ain't committed like you need to to protect Black people. And I think most universities will fall within that middle category. I think it's amazing that you're going to do that. I'm, you know, excited to see it. Uh, definitely share about it, of course, when it comes mm-hmm. out. And I, I mean, I, for me, I think the most hopeful thing about your story is where you're at now, you know, yes. that you're happy and that you <laughs> feel like you can be you and it's, it's, you're supported in who you are, you know? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, shout out to Dr. Rain Cobb. I was ready to leave academia. I was ready to resign and just say, if I, if I don't continue on here, academia doesn't get me. He is hands down the person who said, Maxine, please, please just apply to like one or two other places. Everywhere is not as bad as this. It's bad, but this is extreme. Just try one more place. And I submitted five applications, got four interviews and three offers. So the story there is stay on top of your academic research game for tenure track folks. You play to the outside market. Don't listen to what they say will get you tenure in your institution where you are. You play to the grand market and be ready, have your stuff on point where you can leave. And your CV says that I can leave at any time. Trust and believe. And that is one thing that people can do in order to protect themselves a little bit from just being wiped out of academia altogether. There's problems with that too, but that ultimately I was focused on my research and I had the publications and the, the submitted and and awarded grants to hey, I'm valuable. And yes, Rutgers came correct. Shout out to Rutgers because they came correct. And and recognize my value in many ways. And it's great to be on faculty at a place where I not only feel uh, safe, but feel accepted and valued, like truly valued. That's that's amazing. I'm really happy for you. Um, like, I'm so happy. Like when I 
found out about that, you know, and you know, when you told me about it, I was just like so happy. And the more, and the longer you've been there, it's like, you know, cause at first it's like, okay, this is happening. She's happy. Like, but it, what's going to happen? Is it going to, is it going to stay mm-hmm. good? You know, cause, and, and, and it, and from everything you've said, it has, you know? And so that's like, that's incredible. I'm, I'm so glad. And, um, no, I, I was not, uh, I had no qualms about, you know, if things weren't how, you know, I I talked to many more people this time around and, you know, got, you know, perspective all across the nation on, okay, is this a safe place for me to go safe enough? Um, And from what I got, from what I got back overall, I was like, okay, we can do this. And hands down the union and Rutgers having a strong dynamic union is what pulled me there over you know, the other offers that I had. So, so that like structural things like unions is, is the way forward there. It should, every faculty deserves to have that if they're going to be a dynamic educator and in the space of academia, it's, it's a valuable resource that is, is it just priceless. Um, so that is a big part of why Rutgers got me, but certainly they came correct with the offer and they won me over, um, in many regards. So that, that has been beautiful. Um, and by this point I was vocal on Twitter. So everybody who brought me in for interviews, you know, at this point, everybody saw me on social media and they knew the, like what I was willing to say. <laughs> and so you kind of know your risk there. Um, so if they brought me in for the interview, I just was myself. I was my total self. And it, I didn't want to be anywhere that didn't accept all of me. Mm-hmm. So there was, I went into the market very free um, because I wasn't trying to hide any need to hide anything or be performative. I showed up as myself. And of course, that's what you want. You want where you um, wherever you go for you to be able to be your full self. Well, like I said, I'm really happy for you. I'm happy for Rutgers too. And, um, oh, yes. yeah, cause they got a good one. So I just want to, again, thank you for taking the time to talk with me to, you know, share with the listeners, share with folks who follow the podcast, who read the transcript and share your story. And I, I hope that people realize that you know they're not alone when they're going first of all i wish no one would have to go through any of this you know um no one should um but for folks who might be in there like feeling that initial like confusion like maybe some of the initial Mm -hmm. warning signs and stuff is like you know to really pay attention to that you know and and document everything even things Mm -hmm. you think you don't need to later you you do and to know that like there are others who have gone through it and you're very like, I know you're very responsive. You're very available. You know, now mm-hmm. you're going to create this project. So I just, I want to thank you so much for doing everything you're doing and, you know, for sharing your story and for doing the work. Thank you. Yes. I'm doing the work and I'm only able to do the work because I stayed true to let me pan you over to these these inspirational folks. This is Bertha Gilkey Bonds, who phenomenal. She's she's Aunt Bertha to me. Um, she passed away before I uh, graduated my doctoral program, but 
she organized all of Chicago and St. Louis on public housing um, uh, efforts and giving res- giving residents, you know, um, the responsibility to manage their own communities. And I learned I learned from the best. I learned from Amberta and from my mom Maxine Johnson, who is a premier um, community activist and and is most famously worked on fighting against imminent domain abuse in black communities. So at every point, that's my guidepost. Would Amberta be happy? Would my mama approve of this? And honestly, like that has given me the like, okay, yes, proceed or halt. Don't do it. You can't be silent. You have to say something. (laughs) Like Amberta and my mama would not have me not say something. (laughs) So that is the guidepost that I use in, in terms of whether I do something or not in social work. Thank you so very much. I appreciate you. Thank you for listening to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please follow on Twitter and leave positive reviews on iTunes. If you're interested in being a guest or know someone who's doing great work, please get in touch. And thank you for doing real work to make this world a better place. 